This is Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, it has been a tumultuous few days in British politics. Prime Minister Theresa May, who went into a general election in April expecting to conquer all before her, emerged on Friday a chastened and indeed humiliated leader. And I'm sorry for all those candidates and hard-working party workers who weren't successful... Instead of securing a landslide win, as predicted, her Conservative Party had lost its House of Commons majority and May's promise of strong and stable leadership had evaporated. Now she looked, as more than one observer put it, weak and wobbly. The result left May needing the support of the 10 MPs in Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party to keep her and her party in power. We'll be discussing the implications of all that in a moment. And later, I'll be talking to Lara Marlowe in Paris about the irrepressible onward march of French President Emmanuel Macron, whose party looks set to win a big parliamentary majority this weekend. But first, to the UK, and that stunning election reverse for the Conservative Party. I'm joined from London by Dennis Staunton, our London editor, and from Belfast by our Northern editor, Jerry Moriarty. Jerry, I'll come to you first. The DUP has played its cards very close to its chest in advance of today's negotiations with Theresa May in London. What do you think the party will be looking to get out of these talks? Um, I was told by one of their senior people yesterday that the focus will be on what they call brass tax issues, uh, practical matters, uh, roads, infrastructure, um, health, education and uh, jobs creation. And that could focus on the issue of corporation tax and acceleration, accelerating uh, the reduction in corporation tax down to 12.5%, the same as in the Republic. Uh, so I was told to be mainly on practical matters that it's unlikely to stray into the social area. Um, the one question mark we would have, like the, the, if, if they keep in that ballpark, I mean, that generally should be good for Northern Ireland and wouldn't cause any sort of political, shouldn't cause any political problems. Uh, the only difficulty would be if they started sort of moving on things like sort of parades and flags, uh, possible immunity for British soldiers relating to trouble-related killings, issues like that. But at the moment, I'm told it's mainly, as as I said, brass tax issues. Okay. Now, a lot of people, especially in Britain, are taking a closer look at the DUP for the first time, and many are finding they don't like what they see, especially the party's very conservative social agenda. It's a party that does seem sort of out of step with modern society in many respects. Is that a fair characterisation? I think it's a bit of a caricature party has come on, I mean, the, the, you know, on issues like, you know, same-sex marriage on abortion, it is, it, it, is a, a, it, it has conservative views. And if you actually look at the um, DUP website, it says it is a politically and socially conservative party. So that's, that's what you get. But, you, but you'll also get people like that in the conservative party who, you know, you, you've, you've uh, different views on those issues. Um, but, I mean, so, so, you know, some of the social media coverage in the UK, in the UK you know, some of it has been funny, but some of it has been sort of quite bitter and a bit twisted. And you're talking about, you know, it, it is an issue, of course, but you're talking about fairly serious politicians. Uh, they managed to r- run a government for 10 years, the DUP and Sinn Féin, between Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness first, and then Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness and Arlene and Martin, Arlene Foster and Martin McGuinness for a while. And, you know, it, there were problems, but you, you had a, a functioning Northern Executive and Assembly. So while people in Britain, in Britain who, who never pay much attention to um, uh, uh, government here are a, a bit astonished about some of the history of the DUP. I think, you know, some of it is a, is a, is a, bit, of a, a, a bit of a 
caricature. And in any case, you're saying that there's no indication that they are attempting, they will attempt to impose any of their sort of social agenda, you know, um, on the British government in, in, in these talks? No, I mean, they've, they've said that sort of fairly categorically that you know, their issue is in, in on those issues. As, as long as they remain devolved matters, they will be, ha- they will be happy. So, I mean, they've, they've said quite bluntly that that, that, that that isn't on their agenda. Okay, now um, we, we've Dennis on the line from London. Dennis, uh, what's the latest on the negotiations? I know that um, Arlene Foster, the DUP leader, is, is in London to meet Mrs May today. So what do we know about what's happened so far? Arlene Foster and Nigel Dodds, who's the leader of the DUP at Westminster, they spent about an hour and a half in Downing Street and they left just a, a short while ago. Uh, the, the negotiations are continuing. Uh, they broke up because uh, there was some House of Commons business to be done that uh, some of the participants had to be at and there was the election of the Speaker and uh, then Theresa May later on today is going over to Paris to meet Emmanuel Macron and to attend a football match between England and France. Uh, so it, it looks like the talks will resume later today. Uh, the word from uh, from Downing Street is that they may not be uh, completed today. It could be tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, before they get a deal. But both sides expect a deal to be done and that they're pretty close to doing one. And presuming a deal can be done and the government is in place sometime over the next few days, um, one of the biggest questions arising from this election is, is the impact it's going to have on the Brexit negotiations. First of all, what do we know is is the timetable? Those negotiations were due to formally begin next week. Um, Is there any uh, more clarity now on whether those talks will start next week or not? No, that's also partly dependent, I think, on how long it takes for this deal to be done with DUP because there may be some uh, influence that that will have because clearly, for example... The DUP, uh, while they backed Brexit, they want a softer Brexit in some regards. Uh, So, for example, uh, a a certain amount of ambiguity about the relationship between Britain and the European Customs Union because they want to avoid a hard border. And then at the same time, there are certain noises coming out of the government about trying to to have a more inclusive approach to Brexit. This idea that uh, Michael Gove, for example, who's just gone back to the government, saying that uh, they have to take account of the, uh, the election result. And, you know, acknowledge really that they don't have a parliamentary majority for the kind of hard Brexit that uh, Theresa May has been proposing. So, but still, we don't know. That, uh, David Davis suggested uh, on Monday that uh, there was a possibility that the talks might not actually begin next Monday and that it might be a few days later. But he was suggesting it would still be next week. And can you remind us, uh, listeners, Dennis, that we've been hearing so much over the last few days again about a hard Brexit and a soft Brexit. Just to remind listeners um, kind of what these terms mean, like what are the essential characteristics of a hard Brexit that Theresa May has favoured up to now? Yes, what what Theresa May has said is she's had a number of clear red lines. She says that Britain will leave the single market, the European single market. And the reason that uh, it will leave the European single market is that uh, she believes that Britain must have control over immigration. And if you're in the single market, then you have to uh, have free movement of people uh, from the European Union. So they will leave the single market. They will leave the customs union because they want to, uh, to negotiate new trade deals with other countries around the world. And that the the European Court of Justice should no longer have any jurisdiction over Britain. And then uh, there was also just some suggestion you know, she said that we want control of our money and we're not going to be paying huge sums of money into the European Union anymore. But these, uh, this business of leaving the single market, leaving the customs union and ending the jurisdiction of the European Court of, uh, of Justice, uh, that, that uh, narrows the options uh, hugely because what it means is that even if you have 
if you want to remain in, in various elements of the European Union, like, for example, cooperation on justice, on policing and criminal affairs, uh, then uh, you know, the European Court of Justice is an important part of adjudicating some of those measures. So, that, uh, so, so, so that's really what they mean by a hard Brexit. And one of the, uh, the sort of fault lines now within the government is those people like, say, uh, Philip Hammond, the treasurer, or the business secretary, Greg Clark, who are saying, look, whatever approach we take to these negotiations, we have to put the economy first. Britain's economic interests have to come before, say, things like immigration. Whereas the uh, more hardline people, including Mrs. May herself, uh, they tend to say, "Well, actually, it's cultural factors. It's you know, it's it's uh, and things like like immigration. These are the things that really drove Brexit. And unless we control immigration, then we're not really uh, doing what the people asked us to do in the referendum." And so, Dennis, uh, Theresa May is dealing with these particular pressures within her own party that you've just outlined. And then, of course, the, the makeup of the House of Commons has changed uh, radically since before the election. And probably a majority of MPs um, would oppose the idea of a hard Brexit and oppose the agenda that she was carrying out all along. So she's got competing pressures there that she's going to have to deal with. And it's, she's in a difficult position, isn't she? A very difficult position. As you say, there's uh, probably now a majority of MPs who are against the kind of Brexit that she was looking for. But at the same time, there's a very big and powerful rump uh, of her own party, not a rump, more than a rump, a really large uh, element of the Conservative Party, uh, who are uh, who are kind of very committed Brexiteers and are determined that there should be no backsliding at all. And her fate is in their hands because uh, she was humiliated by the electorate. She had to go on bended knee to the uh, 1922 committee, the backbenchers of the Conservative Party on Monday night, and she said, I'll serve as long as you want me. Uh, and uh, and they will only want her as long as she's doing their bidding. And that's uh, that's a, a serious problem because she's caught between uh, those other parliamentary pressures and also a lot of powerful people now in her own cabinet who are insisting on a change of course on the Brexit negotiations. And then she has these other uh, this other large group of her own backbenchers who want no change at all. So it's a very difficult position for her to find herself in. And probably not helping her. Another important player in all this is just emerging as, a, as maybe a, a vocal participant in this in this um, debate is Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish um, Conservatives. And, and she, of course, is, is insisting that the government needs to reach out to, to all of the parties in the House of Commons and there needs to be a kind of common approach. I don't know if that's a very welcome yes. intervention on Theresa May's part. It's probably not. But on the other hand, she does owe the Scottish Conservatives the fact that she's uh, still in number 10 Downing Street at all, because uh, the Scottish Conservatives had one MP uh, before this election. And now, largely thanks to Ruth Davidson's leadership, they now have 13 MPs. And Ruth Davidson has made it pretty clear that she intends to um, run these MPs as a kind of party within a party, and uh, that uh, she's very jealous of her independence uh, from uh, Westminster and from London. And uh, and she has uh, demanded that there should be um, a more what she calls an open Brexit, and that is to do with consultation. It's to do also with the softening of the approach, and that of course is also good politics in Scotland because uh, it makes sense to distinguish herself from London uh, when she's uh, when she's operating in Scotland. So that's that's yet another headache for uh, for Theresa May as she tries to, in a very weakened position, work out what to do next. Now, sitting back and enjoying this spectacle probably is Jeremy Corbyn and, and um, his colleagues in the Labour Party. But at some stage, they're probably going to have to clarify their position as well because it's not really clear where uh, Labour stand in all of this, um, or is it? 
Well, they uh, have deliberately chosen a kind of an ambiguous position, which is now starting to become sort of uh, the consensus position in uh, the House of Commons, which is that uh, we accept uh, the decision of the uh, of the people to leave, that we must leave the European Union, uh, but uh, we also want to control immigration. But at the same time, we want to put jobs first. We want to put the economy first. And so there's some disagreement uh, within the Labour Party as to whether that means you must leave the single market or is it possible that you could have find some way of staying in the single market? And so, for example, John McDonnell, the, um, the shadow chancellor, a very close ally of Jeremy Corbyn, he said uh, the other day that it was absolutely essential that they leave the single market, whereas then others, Barry Gardner, who is another senior figure in the shadow cabinet, he was then saying, well, maybe there's some way around all of that. So, so as you say, they're, they're a little bit ambiguous, but their ambiguity suits them right now. And, uh, and also uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself is uh, feeling so particularly smug, and with good reason, really, because everybody wrote him off, not just uh, his own, most of his own MPs, but the, uh, most of the opinion polls, most of the pundits, and nobody expected him to do as well as he has. And so he's enjoying the spectacle of all these MPs who were waiting to uh, defenestrate him, uh, now coming back and uh, you know showing uh, elaborate displays of allegiance to him and saying that they admit that they were wrong and could they possibly come back into his shadow cabinet? And um, Jerry, just to bring you back in, on, uh, just on the question of Brexit, uh, Dennis mentioned earlier the DUP's position, which um, is the DUP's focus really all about keeping the Irish border open? Um, I mean, um, or, or have they broader concerns than that? No, like, there is a certain expectation that they would be more, you know, softer rather than harder in terms of, of their aspiration. It was fairly clear uh, in the... Um, in, the, in their own manifesto for this election, you know, where they said they wanted the maintenance of the common travel area and they wanted a, what they call a frictionless border with the Irish Republic, assisting those working or travelling in the other jurisdiction. Um, so they want to get the best deal for Northern Ireland, and the quote was recognising that we share a land frontier with the Republic and the per- particular circumstances of our unique history and geography. So, you know, I would have thought that would be, you know, comforting music um, to the ears of our incoming Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, uh, and the government in the South as people prepare to try and, you know, get the the whole Brexit thing resolved uh, to the the benefit of, of the entire island. Okay, and um, then just to come back to you, Dennis, and maybe finish it here. What do you um, um, what, what do you expect? How do you think this is going to play out? Then, I mean, which kind of of the various paths open to her Theresa May? Which one is she going to take? Um, well, I think first of all, I think that you you will get a deal with uh, with the DUP. It's a mystery in some ways as to why she's bothering to do a deal with them at all, because they are actually, despite what Jerry says, entirely toxic here in Britain. Here in Britain, it is now a consensus that uh, gay people and straight people should have equal rights, and uh, and to have uh, people who are actually still in Parliament, not their fathers or their grandfathers who are describing themselves as feeling repulsed by homosexuality, is something that really makes them seem very eccentric. And it it, it tarnishes the Conservative brand to be associated with them. So it's a dangerous thing from her point of view. And given that uh, the DUP hate Jeremy Corbyn, they regard him as as a supporter of terrorism, and there's no question of them ever doing anything other than supporting a Conservative government as long as he remains the leader of the Labour Party. 
she may be uh, making an unnecessary deal with them. Anyway, it's likely that she'll do that. It'll probably be done by uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. And then she will, uh, you know, uh, the, the negotiations with um, the European Union will start. She does have some time where those are concerned because the initial negotiations aren't really about things like the customs union or the single market. They're more about things like, uh, you know, the timetable. What do we talk about first? Uh, can we agree on citizens' rights? And can we agree on things to do with the border in Ireland? So she may have a little bit of time to work out exactly where uh, the policy lies. But in some ways, because she is in office but not in power, it may not entirely be her that's working it out. It will be her cabinet and senior advisors, but I think it'll do it. OK. And actually, before I let you go, I know you like to, you, you like to make a predi- prediction when you come on the podcast. <laughs> um, and in fairness, your prediction last week was no further out than um, than any other um, commentator. Um, so we won't uh, we won't hold that against you. But um, I was going to ask you your, 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 your prediction about Theresa May, how long? How long do you think she'll be? She'll stay in office. I think that she'll probably stay in office for a few months, but uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be difficult to stay beyond that, partly because of the tensions within the party that we described. The reason that she's still there is because uh, the Conservative Party can't bear the thought of an immediate leadership election, which would be very divisive, and they particularly can't bear the thought of another general election uh, in the next few months because they think they'd lose it, and they think that then Jeremy Corbyn would become Prime Minister. So, uh, so I think she's safe for uh, certainly for a couple of months. Uh, uh, if she gets through the uh, uh, the Conservative Party conference in October, then maybe she'll uh, survive for another few months after that. But certainly, nobody is counting her survival in years. They're counting it in months. Okay. Um, Dennis, thanks for that. And Jerry in Belfast, thank you. Well, for now at least, Theresa May is still the Prime Minister of Britain, and this evening she'll be having dinner in Paris with the President of France, Emmanuel Macron. He has had a slightly better week than Mrs May, and on the line to tell us about that is Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent. Lara, before I ask you about the parliamentary elections underway in France, Emmanuel Macron was elected President of France last month, and going on the result in the first round of that election, he had the support of probably no more than a quarter of the French electorate, but he has made a whirlwind start, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Uh, well, he was, he did lead the, the, the first round of the election, but he won the second round with 66% of the vote. Uh, and there's a, there's a tendency here to see the, how, the glass half full, as it were. Uh, his opponents point out that he, he still only got about 43% of, of the total possible electorate because, um, abstention has been very high in both the presidential election and in the legislative election. And likewise, he's, he's set to win something like three-quarters of the seats in the National Assembly next Sunday on the 18th of June, which is absolutely extraordinary. Nobody's ever won that, that many seats. Uh, but yet again, abstention is extremely high. On Sunday, in the first round, it was over 50% for the first time in the history of, of the Fifth Republic. So on the one hand, he's being incredibly successful, and he's, he's broken down the traditional structure of French politics. He's destroyed the Socialist Party and the uh, the, the Conservatives, uh, Les Républicains, will, will lose about half of their seats in the National Assembly. So he's been, he's been extremely successful. And at the same time, one mustn't lose sight of the fact that he doesn't really have uh, that much popular support. It's, it's a little bit of a, an optical illusion. OK. And just to go back one step first, Lara, well, of course, when he was elected, there was this big question mark over whether... Because he led a new party, now called La Republique en Marche, the question was, could he possibly get this new party, get enough seats in Parliament 
to help him to effectively carry out his agenda. So we had the first round of the parliamentary election on Sunday and, and there's now little, no doubt now, he is going to have a big majority in the parliament to, to support him. Absolutely. There is no doubt whatsoever. And he won't even need, you know, he's allied with a small centrist party called Modem, uh, which is Francois Bayrou's party. And there was some, first they said, well, he won't, he won't get a majority. And then they said, well, he'll have a majority, but the Modem will be able to cause problems and boss him around because he'll, he'll rely on them to, to reach the absolute majority. And now it turns out he won't even need the Modem. The, the two problems that are being uh, talked about most are the possibility that he will have virtually no opposition. And people are saying, well, this is dangerous for democracy and so on and so forth. And the other problem is that with um, something more than, you know, with a huge percentage of the assembly being total novices in politics, uh, people are saying, well, these, these are not experienced politicians. They're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know how to be a deputy in the National Assembly. And to which En Marche is saying, well, we'll, we'll take care of them. Don't worry. You know, you, you have the impression of, of little children going off to school on the first day and sort of, you know, with tears in their eyes looking at their mothers, help, help. It, it, it's almost like that. This sort of, but these are, uh, are sort of rich people's problems, as it is in French. It's 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 a, a, a problem. It's like a luxury to have a problem like that in French politics. And can you explain, Lara, just first, again, before I get back into one of those the bigger issues about the the dangers, I suppose, of such a big majority. Just explain how does the parliamentary legislative election system work? Because we're used to kind of two rounds in presidential elections. I think it's unusual parliamentary elections. So. Um, uh, is it that each seat, the, f- the first two candidates for each seat go forward again for a second round? Or how, how does it work? Because we have a second round coming up on Sunday. Uh, yes. Um, in almost Sometimes in the past, you've often had what they called triangulars, where you had three candidates in the second round. Um, but this time, I think there's only one triangular out of the 577 constituencies because because the participation was so low, um, it meant that you've only got two people facing off. And I know in some constituencies there were huge numbers of candidates. Uh, there, were, there were 22, for example, in Manuel Valls' uh, constituency south of Paris. He's a former prime minister. So there, there was uh, just nearly there were nearly 8,000 candidates in, in the first uh, round. So that basically sifts out uh, all the excess candidates. And then in the second round they face off and whoever gets the higher score, whoever gets the majority wins the seat. Uh, That's how it works. But the system is also skewed to favor um, bigger parties. And, for example, you know, the National Front got um, about 10 10 or 11 percent in the first round, but they won't get 10 or 11 percent of the seats. They're set to get only a very few seats. And uh, one of the issues in the background at the moment is that that uh, Macron had said he would introduce a measure of, um, of uh, representation, of uh, proportional representation into the system, which would favor smaller parties and, and extreme parties. And the reason it's been skewed to favor the big parties is uh, to keep extremist parties out. Now, this didn't keep the National Front from, from doing fairly well until the presidential election, and they've been on a downward slide ever since. But uh, that's that's the theory anyway. So there's a bonus uh, to the parties who get the most votes 
in the, in the legislative elections. And their financing also depends on that as well. Every uh, seat that they fill in the National Assembly brings in 37,000 euro a year to the party. Uh, plus they also get, a, I think it's 46 on teams, if my memory is correct, per vote uh, in the first round. So all their, their funding is based on that. And that's one reason the, the Socialist Party is going bankrupt. And Macron's party, which, remember, didn't even exist uh, a year and a half ago, uh, is going to be extremely rich. It's going to rake in something like 20 million euro a year just on the basis of all the deputies it's, it's got elected to the National Assembly. Now, um, um, the vote, of course, that, that took place on Sunday, projecting that forward, if um, based on based on the percentage um, that that his party got on Sunday, he's on course for the um, to have 440 of the 577 seats in the parliament after next Sunday. But is it possible that some people might, having voted for Lara on March on Sunday, having seen that uh, this massive majority is now projected to happen, that some people might kind of take fright and think, well, it's not a good idea to have such a big majority, and, and some support might drift away or is the assumption that really this is kind of in the bag for him? It's conceivable, but and and certainly all of the the uh, opponents who went on television after the results came in on Sunday night said you can't give him total full power. You have to have some kind of opposition, and that's the argument that uh, Les Républicains, the National Front, the Socialist, um, Mélenchon's party, France Unbowed, all of his opponents are using that argument. Think again. Don't give him total um, uncontrolled power. But it doesn't seem to be working. Macron gets more and more popular every day, and he hasn't set a foot wrong. And he, he, one of the big questions about him before the election, before the presidential election, was can such a young man uh, who's so inexperienced politically somehow embody the, the, the function of leader of France? Can he represent France on the international stage? And he answered that question immediately after he was elected by having this very tough hand shake with Donald Trump and then by standing up to Vladimir Putin in a press conference and now tonight we're going to see him with Theresa May and you know as, as the Prime Minister said on Sunday night, France is back you know people, the rest of the world is taking notice of us, they, they, they respect us again and the French love that they were thirsting for, for that and I, I think his popularity is growing and if you look at the results of the, the first round on Sunday uh, everywhere that La République en Mars Macron's party was present uh, just about everywhere it is in the lead uh, it wiped out the, the left and the right in Paris for example and almost everywhere where it's on, on the uh, ballot in the second round it, it's set to win uh, and most of the constituency where it's, it was con- constituencies where it will not win it's because it didn't have a candidate there they did not um, field a candidate in all 577 voting districts Wow, they could have done even better <laughs> had they done so, maybe. So he's going to have this big majority, that's guaranteed then. What's he mm-hmm. going to do with it? Um, what are his uh, main policy objectives then? Well, his, one of his first priorities uh, is to change the Labour Code because he says that that is what is holding back the French economy. That is why unemployment is so high. It's still over 10% in France, which is one of the higher, higher rates in Europe, certainly much higher than Germany or, or, or Britain. Um, and that has been a, an extremely volatile issue in the past. You remember the, the riots uh, last year. There were some very dramatic pictures of people attacking policemen and so on. 
just because François Hollande tried to tinker with the labor code around the edges. And what Macron is doing is, is much more dramatic. Uh, he doesn't want the trade unions to be able to negotiate sector-wide. He wants, he wants problems to be settled within a, a business or a company. And also he wants to stop the old system of unlimited uh, damages being awarded by labor courts. Uh, which is a, a huge reason why nobody dares to fire anyone in France. I mean, imagine if you or I, Chris, um, you know, lost our job, and we could we could then go and sue our employer for unlimited amounts. And some people were getting five, ten, fifteen years of salary uh, in labor courts. So no one dares to fire anyone. And Macron says, you know, we, we've got to put an end to this. And it's very unpopular uh, with with the unions and workers. But that's what he's going to do. And he can argue that uh, who are the trade unions? They they represent 8% of French employees. I have a three-quarter majority in the National Assembly. Now, whether or not that will prevent demonstrations in the streets is, is another question. But he's very adept. It, it's interesting, you know, a lot of the French politicians are sort of provocative and in your face, and, and they get in rows, and they say nasty things, and so on. Macron always does things very diplomatically, very softly, very gently. Um, and, you know, it, it it's just conceivable he will do this smoothly and without huge problems. Uh, another thing he wants to do is renovate Europe, of course, and uh, he and Angela Merkel are very much on the same wavelength. He is even um, convincing the Germans that they need to do a lot more on defense, which was not uh, an easy thing to do, was not obvious, and he's going to take a lot of initiatives to strengthen the Eurozone, to strengthen, he wants some kind of parliamentary representation for the Eurozone. He wants a, a, a Eurozone government, basically. He wants more European integration. Now, I know that's not terribly popular in Ireland, or certainly not with Fine Gael, uh, but um, that's the direction he's going. And he's got other measures as well, uh, but those would be the, the two top main first priorities. Okay. okay. And uh, I suppose Lara mentioned of Europe, and that brings us kind of nicely to his meet, meeting with Theresa May um, this evening. Um, I'm not sure what she's going to be looking for from him, but she's probably not going to really get very much comfort from that meeting, I would have thought. <laughs> well, when you realize that Theresa May just lost her absolute majority through her own stupidity, and that Emmanuel Macron is about to cement his absolute majority, um, I would think that the balance of power there is, is fairly clear. Indeed, yeah. would like to be a fly on the wall for, for that one. Um, Lara, <laughs> um, Lara Marlowe in Paris, uh, thanks for that. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye.